everybody, it's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we rate your favorite animals in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we try our best to get the best quality information out there. You know what? Speaking of which, I have a little follow-up from uh, the last episode that you and I did together oh, yeah? that I'm very excited about. Okay. Okay, so last time you and I sat down for an episode together, I talked about the Kalugo. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I mentioned during that episode was something that I saw like a very brief mention of, but couldn't find like any more information about it. And that was that Kalugos lick their eyeballs. Oh, okay. <laughs> to clean them like a gecko, right? Sure. Which seemed very unusual to me, but I couldn't find any more about it. And so I asked just into the ether <laughs> out there, I said, if anybody has more information about it, please let me know. And guess what? What? Somebody did. Ivan Kwan replied on Twitter, said, listener from Singapore here. I started subscribing and listening to your back catalog maybe a year ago. Finally caught up with this episode. That is impressive. That is a huge effort. That is a lot of time. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much. Uh, Great to see Kalugos getting a shout out. Here's one that I got close to a few years back and included some photos of a Kalugo clinging to a tree. And it is just the cutest darn thing. This little thing's adorable. Ivan says, yes, the Singapore Zoo is located on the edge of a nature reserve. So we get wild Kalugos living among the trees and wooded areas within the zoo grounds. Um, And Ivan said, as for Kalugos being able to lick their own eyeballs, I've seen it before myself. (laughs) We have an eyewitness. Um, And Ivan included a link to an article published by the local newspaper with an accompanying video that briefly shows the eyeball licking. Okay. So I had looked for evidence of the eyeball licking, Mm -hmm. um, but I did not come across this video. So there is such a video. So I was really excited to see that. Yeah. And then finally, Ivan says, I see wild Malay and Kaluko often enough that they're not really that exciting to me compared to some of the rarer species in Singapore's forests. But I have to remind myself that there's no way for many listeners to see one unless they live or travel in this part of the world. I know that if I were to be like a tourist there, I would be that person losing it over the little Kalugos, just like climbing trees and gliding around everywhere. Yeah, yeah. That would for sure be me, which is like, we kind of laugh sometimes about people who come to Florida and aren't used to this area and they get really excited over the lizards everywhere. Mm, right. That would be me. Which <laughs> 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 is like to them, it's probably like seeing a squirrel, you know, like it's really not a big deal. Sure. But I would be very excited about that. So I was really thankful. Thank you, Ivan, for letting us know about that that's really cool yeah thank you so any like hints as to the why i would imagine probably it's because for geckos at least it's because they don't have those outer eyelids sure um so i would imagine for the kulugo it's probably a similar thing Hmm. but i just thought that was neat that's awesome we are also in a hurricane path right now hurricane ian is coming for the west coast of florida and we live on the east coast of florida so we'll be all right We're stocked up on our supplies. We don't live in a flood zone. We'll be fine. Yeah. Worst case, maybe lose power for a day. Which we're prepared for. Yeah. But we are expecting some severe weather here soon. But we're here podcasting anyway. Yeah. (laughs) What is the the post office slogan that's like through rain or snow or whatever? Unless we lose power, then there's not much else we can do. That's true. These are not acoustic (laughs) microphones. Can't do uh, analog podcasting. Just put it on vinyl. 
<laughs> and then we'll just mail uh, <laughs> big giant vinyl records out to every single listener. Hold on, I'm writing down a Max Fun Reward podcast idea. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> doing like a, a vinyl record that gets sent out. Can you imagine the shipping though? <laughs> oh, shipping those things is a huge pain. Yeah. I think I go first this week. I think so too. We kind of have a little bit of a theme this week, and our theme this week is animals whomst are menaces. <laughs> complete reprobates (laughs) and mine is for sure uh the bane of a lot of people's existence right now it's been in the news for being a complete criminal this is the spotted lantern fly oh boy all my homies hate spotted lantern flies (laughs) um the scientific name is lycorma delicatula or possibly delicatula depending on Whichever you think sounds better. If you want it to sound like Dracula, then you can say Delicatula. Yeah, but do do they deserve the cool points? We'll see. Okay, I mean, okay. (laughs) So I will start off by saying that this animal strikes fear into a lot of hearts right now in America. Yes. Not where they're originally from, where they're fine. They're really not a big deal. From the American perspective, this is like... A horror story. <laughs> sure. Um, this species was submitted by Mickey Berg. Thank you, Mickey. And I'm getting my information from the Center for Agriculture and Bioscience International's Invasive Species Compendium, uh, Virginia Tech's Entomology Department, and of course, Animal Diversity Web. So if you're not super familiar with this little bug, which if you don't live in like the Northeast, you might not be very familiar with them. They're only about an inch long, so it's not huge. And it is a type of insect called a plant hopper. Hmm. You ever seen a plant hopper? I don't think so. They look like a like a chibi grasshopper almost. Oh. They're like shorter and they're very leaf shaped. Uh, they're actually really cute. Hmm. Sometimes they can have cute little colors and stuff. Okay. Yeah. So that's what they are. They are native to China, mm-hmm. but they are now found in Japan, South Korea, and the northeastern United States, where they are a highly invasive species. Mm. So in Japan and South Korea, they're also an invasive species there. Sure. So outside of like the Central Asia mainland area, they're invasive. Sure. I didn't realize this, but the introduction of the spotted and lanternfly was surprisingly recent. Oh. Yeah. So they were first seen in Japan. So they were first starting to spread outside of China in 2009, which was not that long ago. Right. And then the first detection of the spotted and lanternfly in the United States was in Pennsylvania, and it was in September of 2014, hmm. which is only eight years ago. Right. So, very surprising. I mean, surprising to me, at least, that this was such a recent thing. Yeah, because usually when we talk about invasive species, you know, something that was like, I don't know, 100, 200 years ago. Yeah, it's usually like not within my lifetime, I think. (laughs) But this is within my son's lifetime. So, like, this is is very recent to me. They're believed to have been brought into the United States accidentally. So, there were probably, like, some eggs that were on a plant or something that got imported. Mm -hmm. And then the eggs hatched, and then you've got a whole situation going on. They are in the taxonomic family called Fulgoridae, which are the plant hoppers. That's their family. Mm. Um, that's not to be confused with leaf hoppers, which are different. Oh. Yeah, it, this infuriates me. You're going to call them plant hoppers and leaf hoppers when they're totally different things and give them extremely similar names. And they also kind of look similar too. Of course. Yeah, it's I'm over it. But they're cute. Plant hoppers are cute little bugs. They're also very good at hopping. They just 
boing and fling themselves all <laughs> over the place. Uh, we talked a little bit about plant hoppers and leaf hoppers in the episode just a few weeks ago on fleas with Tom Sharp. So um, these are really good jumpers. Um, so that's just kind of an intro to like what this bug is. So to kind of get into the ratings for the spotted lantern fly, uh, first up is effectiveness, which for us is physical adaptations, things about the animal's body that let them do the things that they need to do to get by and thrive in the world. I'm giving the spotted lantern fly a seven That's out pretty of ten. Good. It's okay. It's all right. So just to explain their life cycle a little bit, spotted lantern flies lay their eggs in the fall. So like now, sure. like late September and October, this is when they start laying their eggs. So you're going to start to see egg clusters like laid on trees and stuff. By December, pretty much all of the adult lantern flies die. Mm -hmm. So like no adults left. They don't live very long. By winter, they're like, we're done here. Our job here is done. They're here for a good time, not a long time. Peace out. And then they leave the eggs behind to overwinter. So the eggs just chill until literally chill. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> until the spring. And in the spring, the eggs hatch and the spotted lantern flies emerge as nymphs, right. which I think is the cutest word. Like, that's one of my favorite words in the English language, nymph. Yeah. It's adorable. So they emerge as these little wingless nymphs. They don't have wings yet at this point and they're black with white spots and they have like have you ever seen a weevil yes you know how they have kind of like a long snout mm -hmm. they have kind of like that okay yeah apparently a long time ago people for whatever reason thought that like that part of their body glowed at night and like was bioluminescent and that's where they got the name lanternfly oh but apparently somebody just said that and then everybody else was like, there's no need to check that, I'm sure. And the name stuck, but they don't, they're not bioluminescent. They don't glow at all. How strange. Yeah. It's a very misleading name. Mm. So once they've hatched, they spend a few months molting through their nymph stages to get progressively bigger and bigger and bigger and more developed. These are called instars. Um, so whenever you're reading about like insects and you see these instars, that's just like basically the like the Pokemon evolution stages. Okay. Basically, like each instar is them getting a little bigger and more developed and like they go through a molt in this process. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not like with human babies as you just gradually over time get a little bigger and more developed. It's more like... You're at this instar, and then you molt, and you're suddenly at the next level, right? It's mm -hmm, a much more Pokemon-like mm -hmm. stage system, basically. <laughs> and then eventually they finally emerge as a winged adult. They have black spots on, like, the front half of the wing, and then the back half of the wing is this, like... Um, I saw it described as a brick-and-mortar pattern. Oh. Yeah, it looks like rows of bricks, like, down their wing. That's it's, cool. It's interesting. But, like, combined with the spots, it's very distinct. Hmm. But then they have this inner wing that you don't see until they, like, spread their wings fully. The inner wing is just, bam, it's bright red, hmm. which is really cool looking. I think it looks neat. Now, the wings aren't super strong. They're not great flyers. The wings are really more to, like, boost a jump. Ah. You know what I mean? Like yeah, they, jump they, pack. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> jet pack that's supposed to, like, they jump and then they can use their wings to, like lift them after that but they're not going to be flying is not really their strong suit okay. it's really just to get from one tree to the next tree so they're not really made for like bridging long distances or Got anything it. like that that um, also probably limits their spread too huh but that part of the country is very wooded yeah right yeah. Like there's, it's gonna 
be pretty easy for them to find another tree to get onto. <laughs> or if the tree that they're already on and have already laid eggs on gets cut down and transported oh. somewhere else, then there you go. You've got them being transported to a new place. Yeah. So humans are kind of doing some of that dispersal for them. <laughs> so what is so menacing about the spotted lanternfly? Like, they're just a little guy. It's just a little bug. They don't bite. <laughs> like, they're not a threat to humans. So... People might be wondering, like, why is it a bad thing that they're here? So the thing is, they eat tree sap. Mm -hmm. So they're, which if you're not super familiar with trees, sap is the kind of liquid that is full of nutrients that the tree needs and like sugars that are like the byproduct of photosynthesis, mm -hmm. um, that the tree needs that stuff. And the tree kind of transports nutrients around its body with the sap. So it's basically blood, right. it's like tree blood. Yeah. So that is what the spotted lanternfly eats. So what they do is they, they basically drill a little hole into the bark of the tree and then suck all of the sap out. So they're kind of like a little tree vampire, I guess. They just like latch on and... Mm, going back to the Dracula pronunciation. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Very spooky for Halloween. Um, so they do have a favorite tree. And their favorite tree is called the Tree of Heaven. A uh, scientific name is Elanthus altissima. And this is a deciduous tree. It's native to China. The thing is, the Tree of Heaven is also invasive in the United States. Oh. Yes. <laughs> I bet those two things are related. <laughs> yes. So the Tree of Heaven was planted in the United States as ornamental shade trees. Uh -huh. Because they grow really fast. Also, they can grow in like any conditions like you can grow these things anywhere oh, so boy. when people were like building cities and neighborhoods and stuff like that they were like oh we need some trees here we need them fast and we need them now just throw <laughs> plant a bunch of trees of heaven but all of those factors also make an incredibly uh booming population that is difficult to get a handle on right the trees grow so quickly that they choke out other trees that are trying to grow there mm-hmm Here's another thing that makes me wonder why they decided to even plant this tree in the first place. These trees smell horrible. They smell so bad. Why do we keep doing this? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who decided to plant these stinky trees everywhere. But uh, the city of Portland's government website describes the tree as, quote, some people describe the smell as rancid peanut butter or well-worn gym socks. And that's what this tree smells like, and they planted it everywhere. Wow, that's official steak right there. Don't do that. Yes, that is, it is officially <laughs> government-certified stink. I'm realizing I've never smelled rancid peanut butter because it doesn't last that long in my <laughs> in house. <laughs> Our peanut butter has never gone rancid, no. Yeah, I don't know what it smells like either, but um, it doesn't sound amazing. So these trees are very stinky, which has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. I just found it funny. Mm -hmm. um, so we got an invasive tree paired with now an invasive insect that happens to love this tree. So now we've got kind of a double whammy of a problem. But that being said, they do also like other types of trees. Mm -hmm. So it's not like they'll only eat that tree. They'll go to that tree first. But then if there's none of that tree around or that tree is already kind of spent because they already sucked all the sap out of it, they will go to pretty much any other type of tree, like walnut trees, maple trees, birch trees, apple trees, and grapevines. They really uh... like they like grapevines so all of those trees are economically significant trees because yeah. <laughs> all of those trees 
you know, a lot of our produce economy relies on all of those types of trees. So the problem happens when tons and tons and tons of these lanternflies all feed on the same tree, mm-hmm. which very often does happen. You'll see, I saw, I've seen so many videos, especially on TikTok, of these trees that are like, you can't even see the bark anymore because mm. of all the lanternflies that are on these trees. So you'll see just like thousands of lanternflies on the same tree and they're all sucking the sap out of it. So as you can imagine... If you were covered in mosquitoes and they were all sucking your blood, you'd be exsanguinated and die. So that's what happens to the tree, right? The tree loses all of its sap. It eventually either wilts or just dies flat out. Um, I mean, even if it's not killed right out, it probably weakens it and can right. get other diseases and problems. Yeah, and, it's horrible. Yeah, yeah the, the, it's just a complete blight on the tree. Um, so this means that the spotted lanternflies can just lay waste to orchards or vineyards or any place where lots of trees are being grown for like fruit production or anything like that. So this poses a very, very real economic threat to places that rely on fruit production for their economy. Yeah, yeah. Especially uh, apples, grapes, cherries, and hops are all particularly vulnerable to this lanternfly yeah and there's a huge investment both in time and resources Mm -hmm. to grow trees to the point where they produce fruit right right it's really terrifying like if you start seeing them it is like a you know how like sometimes you get emergency alerts on your phone for stuff like Mm -hmm. i think they should start sending out push notifications to all the phones it's like emergency alert weird bug alert here you go like start sending out wanted posters with little pictures (laughs) of this lanternfly on it it's on site it is truly on site so another thing that they do, so they they suck up all the tree sap, and then they themselves have to excrete waste. And the waste that they excrete is something called honeydew. Oh, okay. I've heard of this. You've heard of this? Yeah. That feels like a very flattering name for bug poop, doesn't it? <laughs> well... Like, call it what it is, you know? <laughs> like, it's poop. It aligns with my feelings on the honeydew melon. I but... know. You don't like honeydew. <laughs> Which is to say, we've only ever had honeydew here. I have personally heard that honeydew is way better where it is grown. Mm-hmm. They don't grow it near us, so we have it. The honeydew that makes it to us is essentially flavorless. So. Structured water. <laughs> <laughs> I think you would like it if we traveled sure. and had it. I'm sure. And had it like super fresh. But the honeydew that these bugs make is just sugar waste, basically. Mm-hmm. And it is a very thick sticky goopy syrup like substance that then just kind of like gets everywhere it chokes out plants below the tree so it can weigh down on like the grass and the shrubs and stuff like that and prevent them from being able to photosynthesize so then it kills off the plants around the tree it also attracts more bugs so like it attracts ants and bees right and stuff like that that are trying to come to get some of this like free sugar basically mm-hmm. so the ecosystem is just completely out of balance at that point like you've got the plants dying you've got way more bugs than are supposed to be in that place it's also really undesirable for people yeah like imagine <laughs> if you've got like a park that is supposed to be like a place where people are supposed to enjoy nature and go for like a nice walk and have a picnic and stuff and the whole place is dead and covered in sticky ant goo like it's Mm -hmm. not going to be an ideal situation so in their invasive range nothing eats them 
because they taste bad and they are themselves a little toxic. Like they're kind of poisonous. Okay. Yeah. But they also just taste really bad and they have that sort of aposematic coloration of having like the bright red wings and the black, the high contrasting spots and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's a signal to predators like, hey, don't eat me. So in America, all the predators here are like, Noted. Absolutely. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> Have a great day. <laughs> and they do not eat the lanternflies. But in China, their primary predators are wasps. Oh. Yeah. Wasps, which don't actually eat them, they parasitize their eggs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is like, you know, a great population control for like once they're an adult, you can't really eat them at that point. Um, it's a way easier meal to get to the eggs and larvae rather than sure. the, the poisonous adult. So the native wasps in China know how to do all that and are really good at keeping the lanternflies in check. Uh, Scientists are now studying these wasps to see whether they might be a good candidate for introduction to combat the lanternflies. We don't know yet. It's a maybe. (laughs) It's an option. It's on the table. But that's one of those things. You got to be super certain. You have to be so sure that nothing's going to go bad. All I'm saying is I've yet to hear one case where this worked out. <laughs> because then you do get <laughs> a little old lady who swallowed the lantern fly situation where now you've got invasive wasps. Well, you know, that's why they're studying them now is to see, like, okay, if we did release a bunch of these wasps, then what would that look like? Like, would they survive here long term? Would they become invasive here themselves? Are we just shifting the problem to a new problem? Just shifting the problem to a less uh, money-making industry. <laughs> that's true. That's like, oh, true. it just kills people. Uh, well, that's cares. fine. That's, uh, is it still going to make us money? <laughs> if so, you got yourself a deal. Which is kind of funny. It's like, help me, wasps. You're my only hope. It's like, <laughs> you think the wasps are like, you must be desperate to come to me for help. Or <laughs> 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 like long, lifelong sworn enemy. And we're like, hey, wasps. We know we've been kind of mean to you. I'm just saying, why don't you come over? We can work this out. Mm-hmm. You can help us out with this lanternfly problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it's... what they thought about the hippos, too. <laughs> <laughs> there are some other like possible population control mechanisms based on natural threats they have in China, including fungal pathogens, which just oh. sounds like... A, sci-fi horror movie it's waiting to happen great timing for the release of last of us part one we do <laughs> there are fungal pathogens that might kill these flies so that's also being studied as an option too so okay yeah it's just one of those things where like here there just aren't enough threats to them because they're such a foreign creature here that nothing in our ecosystems are prepared to handle them yeah so they just they make it to the united states and they're like "Ooh, it's free real estate so they're just having (laughs) a grand old time next category rate animals on is ingenuity i'm giving them a six out of ten which is like okay the the one thing i could kind of find that was a behavioral thing that they do that it seems advantageous to me is that if there are too many of them trying to feed on the same tree and this tree is overloaded and just way too dense, Mm. they will start throwing hands. Oh, So they will go up to each other and like wave their forearms in the air (laughs) at each other and kind of like square up a little bit. Like they're ready to throw down. Um, And then I think the idea is here 
that they're trying not to overfeed on the tree, mm-hmm. but they're not good at it because they don't seem to have a good <laughs> sense of how many is too many. Right. They're constantly killing these trees off. So I don't know if it's a territory thing or if it's like a, a moderation thing, mm-hmm. but I think that they're not great judges of population density mm-hmm. on their trees. Another thing that is great for them, but not for us, is that when spotted lanternflies lay their eggs, they cover them up with like a waxy secretion. And when the secretion dries, it turns this like grayish brown color and it cracks. It's like crackle nail polish. Hmm. Do you remember the crackle nail polish craze from the early 2000s? There's like this nail polish you'd put on your nails that when it dried, it would like make this crackle sort of effect on it. It was uh-huh. hideous. That but... sounds like someone selling a bug as a feature. <laughs> and then it took off. <laughs> now, I'm I'm ragging on this trend, but I'd be lying if I said I never wore it. I did. I had crackle nail polish. Just in retrospect, mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. nasty. But yeah, so it cracks to look like dried mud. So it looks like a smudge of like dirt or something right. on the side of a tree. It's very difficult to see. So it's really hard to tell if you've got like a whole clutch of lanternfly eggs on your tree. Uh, So this helps protect and camouflage the eggs and uh, unfortunately makes it very easy to accidentally transport them Mm. and bring them to a new place because you're not going to be able to see them on the trunk of the tree. The sort of big deduction I gave them for ingenuity is that they don't seem to know fear (laughs) like they don't seem to just be afraid of things so like you can just walk right up to them and they just chill there on the tree they won't really move until they're actually like physically touched oh yeah they're not afraid of you i think they're relying so heavily on their like aposematism and toxic defenses that they're like you're not gonna eat me surely you won't they they can't imagine a danger beyond being eaten right (laughs) (laughs) they're like well like you're not gonna do anything they're like calling your bluff a little bit why would you harm me if not to eat me (laughs) (laughs) Uh no i'm killing you out of spite so yeah that's why i gave them a six for ingenuity uh finally for aesthetics i hate to say it this is a nine yeah slay honestly like (laughs) they look so good (laughs) they're beautiful they have these big round like wide set eyes that give them like a really cute face it's Uh almost like a cicada like face you know i like cicada faces like yeah it's really it's cute the face is cute and then the wing pattern kind of makes them look like a butterfly or like a moth especially when they have their wings spread out it's Mm -hmm. very decorative it's very pretty I love the color palette. It's just, it's really pretty little bug. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, very nice looking. The The inner wings have that like pop of red that is like very, stu- it reminds me of like if someone has on a very fancy jacket and then you notice when they kind of like turn that the inside of it has this like red satin lining. Oh, yeah. You know that little pop of like, mm, there's a little more glamour under right. here. Yeah, that's what it reminds me of. I found this article for the Smithsonian Magazine in October of 2020, and it was called Can Scientists Stop the Plague of the Spotted Lanternfly? And it was by Jeff McGregor. And he wrote, and I just wanted to quote this because 
it describes the beauty of the spotted lanternfly better than I could. Spotted lanternfly, Lycorma delicatula, ruinous and beautiful, the size of your thumb and a destroyer of worlds. <laughs> spotted wings, often a silvery blue-gray, a sort of iridescent gunmetal with a bright red-orange flamenco petticoat beneath. In every stage from nymph to adulthood, this is a stunning bug. <laughs> They're beautiful. Yeah. Which sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it when this happens, you know, like it's a it's an invasive species that we really need to fight against. But it's just so cute. <laughs> I think it works against it, you know, like this is a big thing where I, I've seen a lot of news stories recently of people who are legitimately pushing back against spotted lanternfly controls oh. because I think because it's a cute bug. Okay. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, no, we shouldn't be. We should just let them go. They're just it's it's all part of nature. But I don't think they would be saying that if this was like a worm or a cockroach or something, you know, sure. like you never see this kind of defensive response for animals that aren't pretty or cute. Uh -huh. So I think a lot of the discourse comes from the fact that they're pretty and cute and kind of look like yeah. a little butterfly. It was like a slimy slug or something. Right. Like if it was kind of gross, uh -huh. I don't think people would be defensive about them. But it's cute, which I think is working in their favor and against any efforts to sure. control them. So at the end of the animal rating is usually where we put conservation information. <laughs> this is like the opposite of that. Like we need to unconserve. We need to do anti-conservation um, for spotted lanternflies. And the city of Philadelphia's government website, phila.gov, gives some helpful guidelines that I will link in the episode description below, but I'll also just read some of them. Um, these are just guidelines for how you can help stop the proliferation of spotted lanternflies, which really only applies if you live in those states where they've been seen. So the absolute best opportunity to control the population and protect the trees is to take out the eggs before they hatch. So look really closely for clutches of eggs and like if you see them so like if you see something that looks kind of like a weird smudge on a tree maybe pick at it a little bit and see if it's that like waxy secretion that you can pick off and reveal the eggs underneath um and if you see them just scrape them off the tree if you can uh if possible you can put the eggs in rubbing alcohol to kill them off so if you just like carry around some rubbing alcohol with you and then just, mm, you know, put them I right in there. Do, yeah. yeah, you keep your like pocket <laughs> rubbing alcohol. <laughs> to make sure that you are not carrying around your rubbing alcohol in a similar looking bottle as your water bottle. Yeah. Yeah. Make sure those are very clearly marked. <laughs> you don't want to be mixing those up. But those, like I mentioned earlier, those eggs are going to be showing up in the next couple of months. Like as of this episode being recorded, mm -hmm. this is late September, you're going to start seeing them soon. So keep an eye out for those eggs, because if you can take out a clutch of eggs, it's going to be so much more energy efficient for you to just take off like 30 to 50 eggs rather than 30 to 50 adults. But if you do see an adult spotted lanternfly in the wild or at any stage, if you see one out there, I hate to advocate for killing animals, but like if you see one, you just gotta also report it to your city. Like they probably have an, a department of agriculture that is keeping an eye on spotted lanternflies and stuff. So like let your city know that you've seen one. They care, I promise. <laughs> Something I've I've seen a lot of videos of on TikTok is that you can take a water bottle mm -hmm. or a Starbucks cup. Like a Starbucks cup that has the bubble-shaped top on it that usually is like for like a drink with whipped cream on right, it. Right. You could take a bottle or a Starbucks cup and fill it with soapy water or like put soapy water in it. 
and you just walk right up to the bug and you put the mouth of the bottle around the lantern fly mm-hmm. and then it will just jump into the bottle, right? Because it's that's the only way it knows how to escape is to jump. Oh. So it will jump backwards into the bottle. I assume what people were doing was they were like squeezing the cup and then putting up to the bug and releasing it. So it creates like a vacuum to pull, pull it in. Yeah. I think I thought that was what they were doing too. But okay. then knowing that they're plant hoppers, oh, they're just okay. jumping in themselves. That makes right? sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can just kind of put the mouth of the bottle over and they'll just jump in and then the soapy water like weighs them down and then they can't get out. And there you go. You can make a little trap. I've seen videos of people like, because typically you're not going to see just one. Like yeah. there's going to be a tree covered in them. So people will be just filling bottles and bottles and bottles up with these lantern flies because they're everywhere. So you can catch a lot of them this way. It might be difficult if you're squeamish around bugs. Definitely if you're the type of person that like doesn't like to you know, hold bugs or something. This is probably going to be something that's difficult for you to do. So I totally get it if this is not your scene at all. <laughs> right. But, you know, at the very least, report it. If you see lanternflies, call your city, let them know. I'm sure they'll figure something out. I should also mention they cannot hurt you in any way. They're only dangerous if you eat them. And to us, like, I'm sure if you did eat one i don't know why you would but if you did eat one you'd probably be fine um but they can't bite you they can't sting you they're you know interacting with them isn't going to although they they have some sort of anatomy to drill a hole so i assume the tools are there to cause harm i mean i just i think that it is so different like human skin is so different from tree bark that i don't know if it would be the same Mm. mechanism to pierce human skin but yeah if you if you do like have trees that you're responsible for that you maintain you can put sticky tape bands around the tree trunk like put a band of sticky tape facing out around the tree trunk because they climb up the tree they don't like fly up into the leaves and stuff they have to climb up the trunk so the sticky tape can catch them as they're climbing up you just want to make sure that you're putting like some sort of netting over the sticky tape to prevent birds from getting stuck on it because sometimes like birds will land sure. on it and then get stuck in it and that can really injure the birds. So yeah. um, I'll have, once again, links to all those guidelines and stuff about what to do if you see a spotted lantern fly. I understand if you can't bring yourself to do anything about them. I have the same problem. Sometimes we have like Cuban tree frogs, which are super invasive in Florida. And sometimes we find them on our porch and I know I'm supposed to do something about them and I just can't bring myself to do it. You know yeah, what I mean? Same. I'm also not confident enough to ID them. That's so true. I don't like, just be like, yeah, like it could be one of our native frogs, right. and we're just not like a hundred percent confident in our frog ID right. skills. But I just, they're just so they're cute, and I can't bring myself to do anything about them. Like I can't hurt them. So I understand, but call someone who will. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the spotted lantern fly. Thanks, son. Thank you. Let's hear from some of our friends on the Max Fun Network, and then we'll get to your animal. Hi, I'm Hal Loveland. And I'm Mark Gagliardi. And we're the hosts of We Got This with Mark and Hal, the weekly show where we settle the debates that are most important to you. That's right. What arguments are you and your friends having that you just can't settle? Apples or oranges? Marvel or DC? Fork versus spoon. Chocolate or vanilla? Best bagel. What's the best Disney song? We Got This with Mark and Hal. Every week on Maximum Fun, we do the arguing so you don't have to. Oh, all answers are final for all people for all time. We got this. 
Most game shows quiz contestants about topics they don't even care about. But for more than 100 episodes, the Go Fact Yourself podcast has asked celebrity guests trivia about topics they choose for themselves. And introduced them to some of their personal heroes along the way. Oh my gosh. Shut up. <laughs> oh, I feel like I'm going to cry. Oh my stuff. <laughs> It's so, so exciting. Join me, J. Keith Van Stratton. And me, Helen Hong, along with guests like DJ Jazzy Jeff, Yardley Smith, Roxanne Gay, and so many more on the trivia game show podcast, Go Fact Yourself. Twice a month, every month on Maximum Fun. All right, babe. Let's hear it. What animal are you talking about this week? This week, I'm talking about the Crown of Thorns starfish. Mm, continuing on our theme yes. of animals gone bad. <laughs> uh, sometimes referred to as COTS, C-O-T-S, mm-hmm. it's an acronym. I won't be using it because I find that acronym painful in my mouth. You don't like to say, <laughs> what's wrong with COTS? I don't like it. It's too much. It's too much what? <laughs> it's one syllable. It's too many hard consonants, I, I think. Okay, yeah. I get it now. It is a very sharp sounding. Yeah. yeah. Scientific name, Acanthaster plantsy or planchi. This species was submitted by Jack Calabaza. Thank you, Jack. Yeah. yeah. I'm getting my information from Animal Diversity Web and a couple of other specific sources that I'll cite along the way. So, this is a starfish. Mm-hmm. Not a fish. No? <laughs> kind of a star? Not really a star. It's sometimes shaped like a star. This one, not so much, though. Yeah. At least not the traditional five-point star. We're 0 for 2 on the starfish yeah. descriptor. So, starfish or sea stars belong to the echinoderms. Yes. So, they are related to things like sea cucumbers. Um, I'm drawing a blank on other examples of echinoderms. Sea urchins. Sea urchins. There yeah. we go. So a lot of people, I think, have heard of starfish before, sometimes in popular media. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a very famous one. Yes. Patrick. Pa- Patrick. Our boy. Mm-hmm. So this starfish, though, is one of the largest ones out there. Not the largest, but one of them. Their adult size is 250 to 350 millimeters in diameter. That's 10 to 14 inches. Big. Yeah. Real big. But some get to over 700 millimeters or 28 inches. Two feet, two feet big. wide. That's big. Uh, so, kind of giving you that starfish floor plan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where they differ from, I think, the traditional starfish image is you have instead of five arms, they have between eight and twenty-one arms. So many. Yes, and also their central disc is larger. So they 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 look like you know a good portion of their size is that central disc with a bunch of arms coming off of it. Yeah. Rather than a bunch of arms that meet in a center point. But not the same number of arms every time. Right. Because it, it can depend at what stage of development oh, okay. the individual is Just in. tacking on arms every <laughs> once in a while. Right. And also Babe, some wake other up, reasons. new arm just dropped. <laughs> There's also another reason, but I'll talk about that later. Oh, okay. Another thing that visually sets mm-hmm. them apart from other starfish is their spines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's where the crown of thorns name comes from. It's all coming together. Yes. They're very spiky. Yes, they have these spikes all over their the top of their body. And they're long. Pretty long. Yeah. They kind of look halfway between a sea star and a sea urchin. They're not as long as sea urchin spikes. No. Yeah. yeah. But definitely wouldn't want to touch one. No, do not. Where these can be found are coral reefs in the Indo-Pacific region. Australia famously has had problems with this species. Their taxonomic family is Acanthasteridae. 
the starfish belong to the class asteroidae. Yes. So oftentimes, the starfish are referred to as asteroids. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to rely heavily on context clues yes. for that one. I was very confused at first because my primary source suddenly started referring to them as that without explanation. I was like, hold on a second. Did I accidentally stumble across NASA? <laughs> I was like, am I having a stroke? <laughs> uh, but then I, I kind of did some searching. I was like, oh, okay. It's because of a taxonomic class. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's a cool name, though. Sure. I'm calling them asteroids? <laughs> There's no, I guess, similarities between the... <laughs> well, you know what? I think it comes from both of those. So the you mentioned that the their genus name was like Acanthaster. Right. Aster is a Greek, I believe, word meaning star. Ah. So asteroid oh, comes from the stars. The falling star idea. Yeah, okay. falling star. Sure. Aster, like asteroid, like a starfish. Okay, I yeah. can see it so there's now. A, there's a connection. It makes sense. So I guess that makes sense that it wasn't totally arbitrary. <laughs> so our first category of effectiveness, I'm giving an 8 out of 10. It's pretty good. They're pretty good for what they're doing. So like I mentioned, they have many arms between 8 and 21. And we talked about their spines. And they are toxic. Mm. So They not, look like it. Yeah. They look like they would be. <laughs> they're not super well understood. But it's not the kind of spines that are filled with a toxin that it's injecting. It's it's a toxin that exists on the surface. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. So, and like, that, would you get envenomated if you just, like, touched it? It has to get in your bloodstream. Oh, okay. So, it's a combination of being wounded by the spine and then this toxin that's on the surface of that spine getting Weird. into it. So, they have what's called a saponin toxin. It's often related to plants. Plants will have this kind of toxin a lot of times. And one interesting thing I came across about that toxin, there are several studies on its effects on human melanoma cells. Really? Right. So as a treatment for a type of skin cancer. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It's just very, very early in seeing what, what kind of effects it has on those kinds of cells. Because, mm. you know, a key to cancer treatment is not just dealing with cancer cells but also not harming the the not cancer cells yeah you gotta really thread that needle <laughs> right oh you know what this explains why the pokemon marini which is based on the crown of thorns starfish mm -hmm. is poison type ah. i didn't know <laughs> that that was because the actual starfish is also poisonous yes venomous sorry sure I'm going to talk about Marini for sure. I don't know if you included Marini in your notes, nope. but I absolutely <laughs> will talk about Marini because it's one of the coolest things in the entire world of Pokemon. I'm going to save mine for a little bit later because sure. it's going to tie into something I think you're going to talk about, Sure. but interesting uh, zoology lesson <laughs> from Pokemon. Uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about is how they eat, which is not specific to them in terms of anatomy, but who are all starfish, and it's where they inverse their stomach Gross. On, onto the thing that they're trying to eat so you know the way you and i and most other animals eat is we we take something and put it inside our bodies where our stomach will digest it sure this is the inverse of that <laughs> they will expel their stomach outside of their body to digest that thing on the outside of their body bring the stomach to you yes <laughs> now here's where what they eat is what causes them to be problematic the crown of thorns starfish eats living rocky coral mm. as opposed to soft coral so what they do is they, they crawl onto these corals and they'll expel their stomach onto the surface of the coral eating the living uh, rocky coral leaving behind that like skeleton that rock skeleton behind right back about 
a year ago, last year, I did an episode on carnation corals mm. with uh, Rosie Steinberg, who is a marine biologist who studies soft corals in Australia. Mm-hmm. And I asked about the crown of thorn starfish because I'd heard of it eating corals. And she told me that the soft corals have these sort of like crystalline structures inside of their body that makes mm-hmm. them kind of like trying to like eat fiberglass. Um, that's very unpla- unpalatable uh, sure. to the starfish. And that um, in general, they're, they're also like toxic themselves. So in general, the starfish will kind of will pass up the, the soft corals if there are hard corals available instead. Makes sense. Yeah. So where this has become a problem in... Uh, I think it started in the 1960s was where there were too many of these starfish eating coral. Mm. So it was just kind of devastating uh, coral reefs, particularly the great barrier reef off of Australia. Yeah. And that combined with other problems that coral reefs have to deal with, right? Already. Uh, yeah. You know, the climate change affects them directly, you know, pollution, uh, human activities that are like physically damaging reefs. Right. All that combined. Not good. Industrial activity will disturb the seafloor sure. and then just like knock everything out of place. And for corals, it's really important that they have substrates to like cling to. Mm-hmm. And then when you knock them off, basically, it, it does a lot of damage to yeah. the reef ecosystem. Yeah. So the reason they we, we think they became such a problem. Uh, so one is they're not invasive. They are where they're supposed to be. Yes. Uh, the problem is with how they spawn or how they reproduce. So the the way the starfish reproduces is it, it's called broadcast spawning. Ah, sure. Where it releases, you know, eggs into the water that for the females and the males will release, you know, sperm into the water to fertilize. And then just cross their fingers, <laughs> hope for the best. And then those will start off as, uh, you know, very small larvae in the water column that are feeding off phytoplankton mm-hmm. in their earliest stages um, until they get bigger. So the problem is, one, climate change, but also... Uh, nutrient runoff from the mainland. Oh. So things like fertilizer. Mm. So that thing lets the things like phytoplankton and algae like explode. So it gives a lot of food mm-hmm. to these millions of, you know, larvae that maybe wouldn't have made it otherwise. Mm. <laughs> they were just getting by based on like, most of you are going to die. <laughs> <laughs> well, so it's a lot to overcome, right? So one is to get fertilized in the first place and then not being eaten themselves by other things that are eating plankton, mm-hmm. right? It was a low turnout rate for <laughs> them to actually make right. it to adulthood. So now, you know, with the, the, the human factor is making it so that they have a ton more food mm-hmm. at that stage, resulting in much larger populations of the starfish. Because mm-hmm. they were kind of tracking it to where, you know, they saw these booms in starfish populations about three years after, you know, periods of heavy rainfall which that's about the the growth period mm. for this for this starfish. So from the starfish's perspective, they're doing awesome. Yeah. They're happy, moisturized, thriving <laughs> in their lane, focused, not in their lane. They're very much out of their lane, but <laughs> Sure. And there are things that eat it, but obviously not many right. because of these spines that's specifically there to stop from being eaten. But also I would imagine you're more likely to eat them when they're a larva than when they're an adult. So sure. kind of like with the spot and lantern fly, right? Like yeah. you're going to want to intervene at the egg level right. so that they don't reach the adult stage. Yeah. So that's what they're doing. Uh, they're inverting their stomach onto the coral, digesting it and then pulling it back in along with the stomach, all those digested nutrients and such. Mm hmm. Next thing I want to talk about is their speed. Definitely a detriment. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, these things aren't exactly known to be zipping and zooming. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> slow. Maybe not as slow as I thought they were. But they can move around 35 centimeters per minute, which is about 14 inches per minute. That's decent. Yeah. That's okay. That's not that bad. I want to talk about how they get around, too. So yeah. starfish have what are called tube feet. So basically on the underside of them, they have a ton of these tiny little tube feet that work in kind of a synchronous motion to move them across sand and rocks and such. Have you ever seen the episode of Courage the Cowardly Dog? Where, you know, Courage the Cowardly Dog was very much like a Monster of the Week type of cartoon on Cartoon Network in like the early 2000s. And in one episode, the monster of that week was a giant starfish. I think so, yeah. That one really leaned into these tube feet. (laughs) Because I'm going to show you a picture. Oh, yeah. But like... Every time I think about starfish, like, moving around or or the way that they, like, their locomotion or something, all I can think about is that giant starfish from Courage the Cowardly Dog. Because there's a scene where, like, this giant starfish is, like, creeping over the Kansas landscape. Mm-hmm. And these giant tube feet are just, like, waves on yeah. the, across the ground. It was really interesting. It was, like, <laughs> a really cool way to remember that starfish move like that. Yeah. It's very neat. Uh-huh. Yeah, if you ever get a chance to see a starfish, particularly like if it's on a, a glass pane that you can see the other side of to mm-hmm. see what's going on there, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it is cool. Yeah. Uh, next thing I want to talk about here is uh, a classic thing of starfish is regeneration. Yes. <laughs> so there's a couple different ways that starfish can regenerate. Like some, some will regenerate in different ways than others. So this one will regenerate as long as at least part of the central disc remains. It's a Hydra situation. (laughs) So part of the problem when they were trying to deal with these in the 60s off the coast of Australia was to catch them, cut them in half, and throw them back. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Why would you throw them back? (laughs) Don't do that. So this is called unidirectional regeneration. Oh. Unidirectional? As Uh, in, like, in one direction? So in this case, you need the majority of that center disc to Mm. be able to grow back, whereas I think with the... The other kind, you don't. Oh. And sometimes even you you could just do it based off an arm and oh, it'll wow. grow back from that arm. That's not this case, though. It's like Staryu. Yeah. Pokemon. Oh, this is a Pokemon-heavy episode. <laughs> and this comes from a paper called Capacity for Regeneration in Chronothorn Starfish, Acanthaster Planchi by Mesmer, Pratchett, and Clark. And that was in Coral Reefs 2013. Nice. Another cool thing about their arms yeah. are eye spots. Eye spots yes. on their arms. Yes. Mm. So they do have vision. So they have an eye spot located on the tip of each arm. On the tip of the arm? Yes. Okay. And those eye spots are basically simple compound eyes at the end of a modified tube foot. So kind of like how a snail has like little simple eyes on the ends of their little eye stalk? Maybe. I'm not sure about the anatomy of those. But what's interesting about this starfish is that it has the highest spatial resolution of any starfish studied to date. Well, because they got so many of those darn (laughs) arms with the eyes on them. (laughs) A close-up of it is one of these tube feet with a little colored section at the end. It's actually like a compound eye. Oh, wow. So uh, something I kind of dug into when reading about this is something called a flicker fusion frequency that can be used to describe eyesight. Triple F, baby. (laughs) So that is uh, the rate at which a flickering light is seen as a steady light to an observer. 
<gasps> oh, yeah. that's so, interesting. So this can be related to things like frames per second and refresh rates of monitors and that kind of thing. Right. Right. So for this starfish, it's, it's only between 0.6 and 0.7 hertz, mm-hmm. uh, which means, in this case, flashes per second. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that higher frequency would probably not be necessary for something moving so slow because <laughs> you'll see higher frequencies in things that are moving quickly. Mm-hmm. So like you know, humans, for example... Um, I forgot to write it down, but I think it was around 70 hertz. But that frequency can also depend greatly on the kind of light and lots of other factors. Because for humans, depending on the situation, it could be in the magnitude of hundreds of Mm. hertz. It kind of depends on what we're talking about. Sure. Uh, But that's what we see. The things that are moving quickly will need this higher frequency. Uh, And then things like peregrine falcons and things that are moving extremely quickly and Mm -hmm. need to, you know, be able to process this kind of thing quickly to, to avoid collision is even higher. I think jumping spiders have like an astronomically high like refresh rate mm-hmm. too. Like theirs is like they can see things that to us would appear to be a steady light that to them sure. would, they would be able to see the gaps between it. And it's impressive because, you know, this is something that's happening at like a processing level, not the eye itself. Right. Like this is This is the brain of the organism processing the images. It's a software thing, not yeah. a hardware thing. But for a starfish, why would they? Exactly. Yeah, they don't. They- even if they could perceive that stuff, there's nothing they could <laughs> they do about it. They can't move quick enough to do they anything. They cannot act on that information, right? Well, so it's like, you're just going to like slowly watch your death approaching you. <laughs> there's this episode of Naruto. Where <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what you're about to say. Where, <laughs> where the character Sasuke, who has um, an eye ability called the Sharingan, lets them see real good. Okay. Uh, uh, where he's fighting an, an enemy that is very fast. He's like, I can see him move but I can't move quick enough to react to it. Oh, yeah, yeah that is exactly what the starfish <laughs> yeah. would be experiencing yeah. if they could see better. Yeah, so <laughs> just slap a, a ninja headband on that starfish. <laughs> <laughs> we always try to make sure we have a good fan art prompt uh, in every episode in now, this one. Now, you know what this makes me think of, though? Like what? describing a creature that has a bunch of arms with an eye at the end of each of them? What? A beholder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably some inspiration there. Yeah. I was just thinking it's almost like as different from a vertebrate body plan as you could get. Yeah. Just like eyes on the ends of the arms. <laughs> arms everywhere. Uh, that vision is also most sensitive to blue light. So, you know, all of these combined would be good for detecting large, dark, stationary objects against a blue background. That's probably exactly what they're looking for, right? Yeah. Like a big rock they could climb on and eat some coral? Yep. So this is from a paper titled Visual Orientation by the Crown of Thorns Starfish by Encanthaster Planchi by Petty Hall Hillendel Garm, also in coral reefs, but from 2016. They also use chemical detection and tactile senses with those little tube feet. So that's how it's getting around. Makes sense. So moving on to our ingenuity, I'm giving a five out of 10. Okay. The only really thing I could give them a point for is the the journey they go on to to spawn. Because what they do is they'll purposely travel to like a high up area. Oh, really? To release the eggs and such to Mm -hmm. give it a better chance of mixing with with other components. It's like their version of like Mufasa on top of Pride Rock. (laughs) Basically, yeah. (laughs) So they'll they'll kind of lift themselves up on a high up rock in the reef that that they're found in and they'll release their eggs into the water. Mm, How majestic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) that's romantic Uh, right there and then also i think you know i mentioned how brain power is related to the the vision processing i would think that kind of processing would probably require less brain power (laughs) for sure yeah Yeah. 
I don't think that's something that they've necessarily invested a lot into. Yeah. And then for aesthetics, I'm giving a 6 out of 10. They have a very alien structure. They do. Right? But I think they're beautiful. But they're not cuddly. No, they're not. <laughs> they're the opposite of that. They have some neat colorations. Their, their colorations can vary quite a bit. Right. Uh, I've seen purples and oranges. Uh, I think it's, it's a lot that their diet has a lot to do with the coloration. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. Similar to yours, their conservation status. I couldn't find anything specific, but it's assumed to be of least concern. <laughs> Less than that. Yeah. Negative conservation status. <laughs> the things that eat them, by the way, are the giant triton sea snail. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And the triggerfish and pufferfish. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I feel like they have those little like beaks, basically, yeah. right? Like, So they're, they're pretty tough. Mm-hmm. Like a tough little snout that can get at them. What's interesting about the Triton sea snail, I mentioned that the starfish has a sense of smell. Mm-hmm. To, so <laughs> I've seen videos where one is, a Triton is getting nearby and the starfish knows it's nearby. Oh, no. <laughs> and it starts to run. Oh, oh, poor thing. Well, okay, here's the thing. Their predator is a snail. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so to them, I'm sure, you know, very edge of the seat chase. Yes, this is a high stakes drama <laughs> for them. But to us, it would seem very slow. Uh, the Triton will win, though, mm-hmm. uh, and then eat the starfish. I would love to see the BBC Planet Earth chase scene. Yeah. That's like a snail chasing a starfish, but it's like, <laughs> it's set to the exact same, like, super intense music they would use for, like, a lion chasing a gazelle. But it's just that music, but it's played for, like, three hours while the snail chases the starfish. Get Vin Diesel and Dwayne Johnson doing some voices in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, by the way, the the Triton sea snail is one of the largest sea snails out there. Wow. Um, Although they have their own population concerns because of being overcollected. Their their shells are very large and very pretty. Oh, poor things. When you picture a sea snail that has been turned into like a trumpet type instrument, this is a lot of the time the kind of snail that was used. Okay. Uh, now I'm going to feel bad when I see those. <laughs> so that's the kind of the setup for these things. So they spawn a lot and mm-hmm. then there's not a ton of stuff out there eating them. Sure. So you really got to get, you have to intervene at that egg phase, <laughs> right? Like that's going to be your best chance. You to... can, sure. Um, so that is the crown of thorns starfish. Can I do my Pokemon thing now? Yes. Okay. <laughs> So I mentioned that the Pokemon Marini, and I believe also the Pokemon that it evolves from, which I think is Toxapex. I pulled up the Bulbapedia article a little bit ago because I wanted to double check that it was in fact poison type, and it is. Okay, so Marini evolves into Toxapex, and they are both based on the Crown of Thorns starfish. So in the game that Marini and Toxapex were introduced in, which was the seventh generation of Pokemon games, which I believe was in Alola. It was in Sun and Moon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In that generation of games, a very interesting mechanic was introduced to wild Pokemon battles. Mm. So if you've ever played a Pokemon game, it's, it's the same. You encounter a wild Pokemon and then you're battling it. But in Sun and Moon, there was this gimmick where sometimes the wild Pokemon you were battling would call for help. Yeah. And it would bring in an ally. So, you know, if you're battling, I don't know, a gosh, what, a, a Bidoof or something like that, <laughs> it might call for help and then now you're battling two Bidoofs. Mm-hmm. One of the Pokemon that would use the call for help was Corsola, mm-hmm. a Pokemon that is based on 
corals. So you would be battling a corsola. Sometimes the corsola would call for help. And usually then another corsola would join the battle. And now you're fighting against two corsolas. Sometimes the corsola would cry for help. And a Marini would join the battle. Yeah. And the Marini would attack Corsola, not <laughs> you. So it would like bring in another enemy against itself, basically, <laughs> uh, which was really interesting because Marini is based on the Crown of Thorns starfish, which eats corals. Right. And in the Pokedex, it's explained that that Marini and its evolution Toxapex do eat Corsola. Now, was this the ghost type Corsola, though? I don't think, because I think that the ghost type Corsola variant was in Galar, which is which was the next generation oh, after that. Okay. So I don't think it was, but it was uh, it was really interesting to see like a real world ecology lesson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a Pokemon game, so cool. <laughs> I think that was just such a clever idea that they had that like. The Corsola will bring in a Pokemon that will like actively try to predate it during the battle. <laughs> like you're seeing it play out in the actual gameplay. I, I see y'all are doing something right now, but I'm hungry. So. <laughs> well, I'm wondering if like from a narrative perspective, the Marini is like, oh, you know what? You're already weakening this Corsola for me. I might be able to score a meal out of this. Sure. So very cool, interesting little thing, which kind of got my attention on the Crown of Thorns starfish, because I was like, oh, I want to know more about it. <laughs> but we've also seen them on, on Octonauts. Yes. I think they had like a special or a movie or something about it. One thing I didn't dig too deep into it, because it was more specific to how coral works, but my understanding was they the starfish eats the like living tissue off the coral, right. leaving behind like a structure. Yeah. That structure could be used by other coral to like grow polyps back into it. Mm. But what can happen is algae will probably settle in first. Oh. Uh, kind of not allowing it to happen. Yeah, like stop it up yeah. and then there's not a lot you can do with it. Mm. So I, I asked about the, the ghost type corsola because I would figure... Because the, the, the ghost type corsola was supposed to represent like a bleached coral. Yeah, bleached coral. Whereas a starfish would not be interested in that kind of coral. <laughs> right. Yeah, because there's nothing for it there, right? right. Like it just, it's it's after the living tissue, not the right. actual like shell left right. behind. Octonauts is a great show, by the way. It is. It's really cute. <laughs> we watch it all the time. It's on Netflix. If you've got kids, watch Octonauts. It's a legit show. It's so good. I get the song stuck in my head sometimes. Oh, constantly. <laughs> it's, I'm having little creature reports in my head every day. <laughs> Big Octonauts household. Thanks, babe. That was great. Thanks. Excellent. I should probably wrap up by saying like, while yes, we've been dragging these animals for being absolute hooligans, it's not their fault. You know, they're doing what they're meant to do. It is yeah. purely human introduced circumstances that have caused these animals to be in situations they wouldn't naturally find themselves in without human intervention. Yeah. So ultimately, it's our bad. We are the true villains. Like, are we the baddies? Um, it's it's our fault <laughs> to begin with. And also, we're, you know, we're making these changes in a at a speed that could not otherwise happen. Right. right. They're not prepared for anything we're bringing to the table. So it's not their fault. I'm not blaming them. Yeah. But even though these animals may be causing harmful effects on the ecosystem they're only doing that because of what we've been doing right so like it all kind of falls back on us eventually so i'm absolutely not trying to like villainize or demonize yeah, yeah. the animal itself they're just they're doing what they have always been doing but sometimes things go haywire so <laughs> 
Uh, thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, if you want to come hang out with us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we have a Discord server that's really fun. Everybody in there is super nice and fun to talk to. Links to everything are in the episode description below. My email address is ellen at just the zoo of us dot com if you have a cool animal that you want to hear about. I do also want to thank people for leaving nice reviews of our show on uh, platforms like uh, Apple Podcasts. Like uh, the freshest one I can see right now is from mytho enthusiast who said unique creative and interesting so thank you so much for everybody who leaves good reviews i promise we read them and they make they make us happy uh so keep it up we want to thank maximum fun for having us on the network with their other delightful shows you can check out those shows learn more about the network at maximumfun.org that's also where you can sign up to support our show and all the other shows in the network so head over there to learn more and finally we we would like to thank louis ong for our theme music that is just fantastic and amazing i bet if sea stars made a sound we would put them in there too but they don't (laughs) We can say those are like the rests and pauses. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, sea stars are all about jazz. It's all about the sounds you don't make. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.